We're speaking out of John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And it reads, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, and did not know where they come from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then pour wine. But you have kept good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. When it's election time, each party will normally have what's called a launch event. Now, this launch event, as we know, aren't just nice events. Rather, they use these moments to set the tone of what they're going to be all about. They have the slogans all written up in lights. They have their policies on all the posters. Everything about that launch event is a way of communicating from the get-go to the people what they're going to be all about. Those type of events are, let's say, very deliberate. Now, in this scene, there is something like a launch event going on here. If only we know how to look at this very peculiar scene in John's Gospel. Smarter people than I have discerned that there is a writing pattern to John's account of Jesus' ministry. Within this gospel, it is discerned that there are what's called seven distinct signs of Jesus. Signs that tell us who Jesus is and what his rule and reign would be all about. The original readers would have seen that the word in the Greek, the word miracle, isn't used here. It's not the typical word for miracle that's used in the other gospel accounts. Rather, it is the Greek word for sign. Now, in Jewish thought, a sign is an action that is done in order to point towards something beyond itself. Now, like a sign, if you're driving down the freeway and it says 10 kilometers to Perth, do we stop at the sign and say that we've arrived in Perth? No. 
we allow that sign to point us beyond itself towards the location, towards the thing that it's all about. And in the same way, what Jesus is doing here when the gospel writer John says that this was the first sign, it was about that Jesus did something in this particular miracle of turning water into wine that points beyond itself. In verse 11, it said that this sign of turning water into wine manifested his, quote, glory, end quote. In other words, this was the first sign that revealed the full weight, the full gravity, the thing that was put on display, who Jesus is all about and what he is coming to bring. This, if you like, party was almost like a campaign launch event of God's kingdom, of God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. Now remember, it's all about the launch event. It's all about the launch event. And in John's gospel, we don't have another recorded miracle at this time, at least in John's account. So Jesus' almost political-like launch campaign was turning water into wine at a wedding that had run out of the good stuff. Which is strange, right? Like, out of all the things Jesus could have done to show the full weight of who he is all about. You know, he could have gone, he could have gone to a funeral and raised someone from the dead, declaring that he is the one who defeats death. He could have fed multitudes, declaring that his kingdom that he was making in this world will be a kingdom when all, all will be fed. He could have gone onto the streets, healing people, declaring the healing work of God as his first and foremost miracle, which are all things he does do, but later on. But instead, his kingdom-defining, his first inaugural miracle his launch event, the first sign that manifested his glory of who he is and what he would all be about, was turning water into wine. Not only is this a strange first sign to display the full weight of who he is and what he's going to do, it's also a very low-frill experience. The social setting wasn't even his own. That's number one. And when he does turn the water into wine, he doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't give a sermon, which, by the way, in other sections of the Gospels, Jesus is quite comfortable to do a sign and have a, have a sermon that's attached to it or say something about it, but not here. It's a very uh, wink and nudge miracle, if you like. And the text itself has confused scholars and speakers for centuries as to even whether Jesus was planning on doing this sign in the first place. Of course, his very discerning mother, who at some sort of intuitive level seems to know that her son was someone special, makes the point to her son, Jesus, that the wine had run out. And Jesus, in response, is like, what's that got to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. And then yet again, the discernment of Jesus' mother prompts her to tell Jesus' Jesus's disciples to get ready to assist him. 
because something's going to happen. It's all very, very strange. And yet, I contend that this ministry launching sign of Jesus is exactly the type of event that defines from the get-go who Jesus is and what he is bringing to the world. And I will contend that even for here today, it's telling us exactly what we need to hear. On one level, Jesus turns water into wine to save the wedding party from shame and keep the party going on. For you see, in Jewish times, in, in the Jewish weddings at that time, the whole wedding bill was paid for by the groom's family. And so if they run out of supplies, it was considered extremely shameful. So on one level, Jesus is saving people from the shame and keeping the party going. And yet, any good scholar will tell you of John's gospel that there is more going on than meets the eye. And that this is found in the masterful detail within the text. Verse 1 says this, that this event, this turning water into wine, this wedding, happened on what's called, quote, the third day, end quote. Now this is important. This isn't just fun facts for Bible study. It's significant. Because the third day is about, it's, it's used in Scripture all the time, especially in the Old Testament, and it denotes the day of God's deliverance. In other words, in Jewish thought, the third language represented the day that God will come and fix the world or come and fix and save the day. So in John's Gospel, we are told that this is some sort of rescue, some sort of deliverance. Now hold that thought, because then we have wine as it's seen in Scripture. Because in Jewish thought, wine, when it's related to a festive occasion, symbolized carefree joy. It's an element of revelry and rejoicing. In fact, one ancient rabbi used to say that without wine, there is no joy. Now here's the thing. There are these texts that were well known by Jewish readers that had the imagery of wine being associated with it and that was also associated with the day of deliverance. In Isaiah 25, in Amos 9.13, Joel 3.18, all paint pictures in the heart of the readers of a day describing a future day of God's deliverance and that in those particular verses denote a day of celebration, a day where there is wine being served at a royal banquet. These Hebrew scriptures give us a third-day type-style deliverance where the imagery of God fixing the whole world has in it pictures of fine wine, of banquets, of joy, of rejoicing, a symbol of God's joyous deliverance unto a kingdom of joy. And then also, fast forward towards the end of Scripture, to the end of the Christian Scriptures, what do we have? In John's Revelation, how do we see it described or the final setting of God's fixing of the world? Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. 
Once again, wedding language. Pull all these prophetic pictures together and zoom back into this humble wedding scene. And we can understand indeed why this revealed the glory of Jesus, the weightiness of who he is, of what his kingdom will be about. It is no coincidence that Jesus turns what would have been the equivalent of 700 bottles of water into 700 bottles of wine. No one can drink all of that. I don't know how many people are at the party, but 700 bottles, that's a lot. This third day, quote, wedding banquet sign is Jesus telling all who read this text that this is the sign that Jesus is the Lord of joy and that this is the kingdom that he's bringing, a kingdom of joy. So yes, at one level at this party, he saves people from their immediate shame and brings to them the reality of God's good kingdom festive joy. And yet, this is a sign pointing towards a more deeper and cosmic salvation. God is saving the world from the things, from the kill joys of life. God is saving the world from our, saving us from despair. Instead, he's bringing into this sad, sad world, his festive kingdom, and into this world, into our tired and sad hearts too. In other words, this isn't just a nice miracle. And neither is it just a mere story that doesn't speak to us today. For in a world like this, a world filled with death, a world filled with trauma, a world filled with sadness, we need to know this. We need to know that Jesus himself has, is, and will one day Bring a kingdom of joy on earth as it is in heaven. Because if you turn on the news, or even perhaps if you look at aspects of your own life, maybe in different seasons, but maybe even now, there can be a lot of sadness. It is my assessment that we live in a time where there is what's in this world, what we could call a story, a narrative, a social narrative of despair. It's a story, a narrative, a way of looking at the world that in the final assessment of things doesn't have a happy ending. It's a story that the world believes, that our culture can believe. A story that says that the universe will one day go to its eventual heat death, but before that time our sun will turn into a supernova and swallows us up. But before any of that happens, we would have killed ourselves in our stupidity. It's a story, a narrative, a cosmic story that ends in despair. Now, don't mishear me. There is a real sense of urgency to some aspects of these stories, some aspects of these social narratives. For example, I would say that we need to be a people who do take things like climate change seriously, because we're called to care for the earth as God's good stewards. Also, we do need to hold leaders to account who seek to act recklessly and cause social disarray. And of course, there is a half-truth as well of this social narrative of despair that also needs to be heard. That some things don't last forever. 
For example, I will go home tonight. I will have dinner with my family. And I'll have to face the fact that one day I will either see every single one of them die or they will see me die. And there's no escaping that. And so I might appreciate the moments of joy I have, but all things do indeed come to an end. The party can't go on forever. These stories eventually lead to sorrow. So there is indeed a good aspect of learning to appreciate the gift of the present, the gift of this moment, to learn to appreciate what we've got. And I do want to learn to be more present to what's before me, to be more thankful. However, the critique is our culture's understanding of the universal story arc, that no matter what good we do, all will be forgotten and gone, that all will be a blip, a stain on an otherwise indifferent universe. If we believe all in the end is doom and gloom, then it is very easy to numb ourselves. It is very easy to self-medicate ourselves. Because who wants to have at the forefront of their mind a cosmic story of doom and gloom? Who wants to reflect on the meaning of life in light of that type of story? And what if that story has so seeped deep into our bones that we do feel miserable? What type of partying might we have in such that story? A partying to numb ourselves to the pains we have? And we can all do this. We've all been guilty of this, myself included. It's easy to self-medicate and not to face the hard realities of life located in this larger social narrative of despair. And we can even, in those moments then, turn the good gifts of the present into an idol of always seeking the high of life lest we face the story of a world of an eternal and indifferent low. That, unless our joy is located in something that doesn't die, in something that will last forever, in something that can sustain us, that we can often be left with sorrow and in the end, self-medicating. But this humble wedding scene tells us a different story. It tells us a different story about our world. It gives us a sign of what Jesus has birthed and is birthing and will birth. It gives us good news. If pop culture tells us anything, there is a reason why the best movies, or at least the movies that are remembered throughout the decades, are the ones that have good endings. The dark side of the force is defeated. The rings are thrown into Mordor. Deep in our bones, we want this world to be made right. And our storytelling shows that ache for that. What if, though, that the stories we tell ourselves in our movies are actually somehow the story that will one day become true for the whole world? What if the hero that we have wanted as we watch these films and write these plays, what if there is a hero that we've had the whole time? What if the hero that we're looking, looking for is found in this text, in this humble wedding scene, 
who turns water into wine in order to show us that he can cosmically turn the world's sorrows into true and authentic eternal joy. Because if we believe that a new world is coming that has a better ending than what our culture tells us, then guess what? We can celebrate. We can celebrate like that of this wedding. As opposed to self-medicate like that of a culture enmeshed in a story of despair. I want to contend today that there is a different way to be a people of joy in this world. That we don't party, have joy and celebrate as a people in a social narrative of despair that leads us to numb ourselves and say, let us eat, drink for tomorrow we die. But rather... We party, we have joy, we can celebrate as a people with a story of hope that says, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we will live. That we don't celebrate to self-medicate unto forgetting, but we celebrate to liberate unto a type of remembering, a remembering that there is a new world coming that has been birthed through Jesus. That's the good news, that there is one to whom we can locate joy in who is joy himself and that in himself is birthing a kingdom that hasn't died and is here and is coming and will one day come in full. One who doesn't give us a social narrative of despair, but one of hope, one of good news. And that is a Jesus. That is a kingdom that we find in this text. A king of a kingdom who is the life of the party and brings the party on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder what it would be like to be like that in a world that so needs it. I'm going to show you a video that I think demonstrates a great example of what it looks like of just one person. This was just one individual who showed what it looks like when he brought and embodied in himself the joy of the kingdom. Let's give it a watch. Thank you. It's no wonder why the best times that we do have, the things that lift our spirits, include humor and celebration. As such, it is no wonder why this is Jesus' first sign then, that we can be a people who go into the world and bring joy and goodness and laughter into a world so devoid of it that we can even allow the Holy Spirit to fill us with joy and laughter and even us minister to one another in joy and in laughter and in God's goodness. Yes, Jesus can defeat death, and that's a sign of the kingdom, but all death will one day be defeated with no more needing to be defeated. Jesus can heal, yes. And when he does heal, this is a sign of the kingdom. But one day all the world will be healed with no more need 
of healing to be needed. Jesus can feed the multitudes, yes, and as a sign of the kingdom, but one day all will be fed and no such for more need to be filled. But the joy of the kingdom, that never ends. It's a kingdom that always goes further up and further in into love-saturated joy. There will always be more joy, celebration, love, gratitude to be had when the world is made right. So, of course, when we want to learn of who Jesus is, John writes this as his first and foremost sign. There is a reason why you can go to persecute the churches in the world and that there can be so much joy and their joy is electric. And it's not stoic. It honestly isn't. They're not covering up pain because when there is pain in those communities, they also know how to lament. They also know how to cry. And yet, boy, do they know how to party. Why? They have learned to see that there is a story to this cosmos that has baked into it, into the heart of reality, a God who is joy and who promises to make a world of joy and thanksgiving. And so it is in their celebration, even in the midst of their persecution, that they celebrate. Because they have at the first and foremost of their mind the truth that there is a new world coming where God reigns. Enjoy, capital J, is all present. I'll have the band come up. Thank you. Please hear me correctly. I'm not saying that we, if someone's crying and in pain, that we just don't care about their pain or suffering. That's not what I'm saying. You weep with those who weep. You mourn with those who mourn. So I'm not talking about bringing a type of joy, some sort of stoic cover-up or some sort of insecure cover-up because we can't sit with people's pain. I'm not talking about that. Because we do need to be people who can weep with those who weep. And yet also like that of the preacher Tony Campolo, as we saw in the video, and like that of Jesus turning water into wine, and like that of some of the persecuted churches in the world, we are also called to be a people who as a community and as individually can bring signs of festive hope in the world filled with darkness as a signpost to a world that is coming that Jesus can in part by the power of the Spirit also bring into the here and into the now. Not just, not just that we go out into the world and bring that, but that we can also bring that to each other because we're a community some of us can go through hard times and sometimes we just do need people who can sit with us in our pain but they can also bring good news of a God who says that ultimately this is not the end that this world doesn't end in a narrative of, des of despair but in a narrative of hope that Jesus has, is and will one day make this world a world of festive joy a world of festive joy. And yet, 
this reality that he is bringing, it didn't come easy. When Mary asked Jesus to do something about them running out of wine, what did he say? He said this to his mother, my hour has not yet come. That phrase, my hour has not yet come, that's only used three other times in John's gospel. You know what it's referring to each time? It's referring to his death. Mary was asking, we need more wine. And maybe in a more mystical, mysterious, and cryptic way, Jesus is saying, it's not my time to die yet. You want to make a surprise party for a friend? You have to dedicate time and energy and a whole lot of money to make that happen. And the grander that you make this party, the more of a personal sacrifice it will take on your behalf. My friends, if Jesus is going to make a grand festive party for the whole world, if he is going to supply, quote, the wine, quote, it will cost him. And it did cost him. It didn't cost him money. It cost him his life. The only way that this world could be a world one day filled with festive joy is if Jesus destroys the very things that rob this world of deep and true authentic joy. Because we look around us and we see a world of sin. We see a world of death, of despair, of injustice, of destruction that robs the world, robs people, robs you and I even of true joy. On the cross, Jesus let the only things that take joy out of this world do their worst to him so that those things that take our joy and kill joy, their powers are exhausted as they do their worst to Jesus. And thus, in the death of Jesus, Jesus kills the kill joys of life. Now, this doesn't mean, of course that we don't go through hard times anymore. This doesn't mean that things like trauma and suffering and death aren't very real. I can tell you story after story of my own life, and I'm sure the people that you know, perhaps even your own life, where you've been robbed of joy. And yet, the point of Jesus defeating the kill joys of life isn't that they're now gone for good, That comes later when Jesus appears again. But they are in principle defeated, seen as truly defeated in the ultimate sign of their defeat, that Jesus on the third day rises again from the dead. Death, the final blow of any killjoy, couldn't hold him down. A sign for you and for me and for the world if there ever was one. Jesus wins against the ultimate and cosmic kill joys of this world. That on the side of, res- of the resurrection of Jesus, we are now awaiting the final joy to come when Jesus appears again. That those kill joys, those still very real in our world and in our lives, they though no longer have the final say. And, 
And because Jesus' kingdom has already started, we too, in part, can experience God's joy in our life. God's joy in our communities. God's joy in a world that so needs it. And my friends, we too can heed to the task that Jesus gave his servants at the wedding feast to fill the jars with water. He's the one who will turn the water into wine. We are just called to be God's hands and feet, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be a church who can be a people of celebration and life in an otherwise dark and twisted world. And we do this in anticipation for Jesus' appearing again where the party in its full force will ultimately be started. The festival of festivals was accomplished in the death and the resurrection. And as such, on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit empowers us to bring joy into the world in anticipation of what is to come. My friends, maybe as you read this text today, you can glean different things from it. Maybe you need to see this sign and use it as the way in which you trust him, to see him as the ultimate joy. Maybe this is challenging you and I to ask ourselves the questions about how we can bring more Jesus-shaped joy and celebration into the, to the lives of the people around us. Maybe you've come to see that you can too call upon Jesus to turn the miracle of water to wine in your life, just as he did in Cana. That maybe you have joy that you need in your heart. Sorrow turned into joy. However the Holy Spirit moves you today, I want us to bring us to that big picture. Jesus is saying, come, join the party. There is enough for all. So I'm going to ask the ushers who can be ready to serve communion because we reach the climax of our service where we are all invited to taste and drink of the party Jesus has made on his death on the cross. The calling to be part of communion is our letter, our invitation to partake and participate in the party Jesus has, is, and will one day make a joy in the world. This bread signifying his body, this grape juice signifying his blood was the way God ultimately made the party. And so as we take these elements, it's not just to remember what it took to make the party happen, that being his death, but also becomes the way in which we participate in the resurrected life of the party unto a joyous world made right. That in the same way Jesus turned water into wine, that these elements transfigure within us as a way God remakes our tired and sad hearts into hearts filled with his joy. And that on the far side of this transformation, that God remakes us as a people who can bring the redemptive life of the party that the world 
so needs. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and to those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you have little, you have been here often and you've come for the first time. You who, have ti- you who are tired, to fo- you have tried to follow Jesus and you have failed to follow Jesus. And you who have just decided to follow Jesus today, come. Let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and receive mercy. Leave now if necessary. Go and be a forgiver. Then run back, because it is the Lord who invites us. It is God's will that those who desire Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit would encounter him today. So come.